0: You're listening to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast with Jody Livingston, episode number 11. Wicky wicky. Welcome to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast, helping you survive and thrive in youth ministry. And now your host, Jody Livingston. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening today, wherever you are and wherever this finds you. Thanks for making this podcast today a part of your day. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for coming over. Welcome. We're glad to have you. And if it's your uh, not your first time and you're just coming back, well, thanks for coming back. If you enjoy the podcast, man, please head over to iTunes, subscribe there so you get the podcasts every week and you don't miss out on any of the great content, as well as write and leave a review there. It's really encouraging to me and it helps uh, me move up in the rankings there in iTunes as well so other youth pastors and youth workers can find it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jody Livingston, that's J-O-D-Y, and of course at thelongerhall.com. And over on the Facebook, you'll find The Longer Hall There as well, all of the links, all of the resources mentioned today in this episode will be in the show notes at thelongerhall.com slash episode zero one one. That's thelongerhall.com slash episode zero one one. Today's guest is Dr. Jamie Dew from Southeastern Seminary. He is the dean of the undergrad department there, super smart guy. And we are talking about apologetics. In the last episode, we talked about doctrine and theology, the importance of that, how do we do that in student ministry practically, how does that play out? We gave you some great resources there and some starting points. And today kind of piggybacks off of that a little bit and talks about from that position then, how do we move from doctrine and theology to preparing our kids to be able to defend the faith and not lose their faith and get washed away as they go off? To college, so some great stuff today we're taking you to school, ladies and gentlemen, literally, and uh, so it'll be really, really good. put on your thinking caps, lots of good stuff in here, really, really helpful, and something that 's very, very important that we should not neglect at all. I want you to also you 'll hear a difference in the audio quality of the interview versus what you 're hearing right now that is because when I sat down to do the interview, I' had been running my kids all over the place that day and had forgotten my microphone. That I normally use. So I had to go to a backup mic. The audio quality is still good. You can hear it fine. I just want you to know that there's a difference there. So you're not caught off guard uh, when you hear it, but it's a great interview and you're going to get a lot from it. Before we jump into the interview, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, which is audible.com, a great resource for you. Audible.com, I use all the time. We talk a lot about reading. We've got the book club, most of our podcast episodes are giving books as resources at the end of them. Many of those, most of those, you can probably find on audible.com. Uh, you need to be reading if you're going to be leading. That is a fact. And so audible.com helps you do that, helps me do that much more and much faster. I love listening from my iPhone. I can listen from the MP3 player, from our Kindle. Uh, it's just a great, great resource. Over 150,000 books there on audible.com. And for listeners of The Longer Hall a Youth Ministry Podcast, they're offering a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial just to give you the opportunity to check it out and see if you enjoy it, if it's helpful for you. I think you'll find that it will be. It is and has been for me. So you can go to thelongerhall.com slash audible trial, thelongerhall.com slash audible trial. That'll take you there. Check it out. You've got nothing to lose, man. A free book, free 30-day trial. Uh, just try it and see if it's helpful. If it's not, then don't worry. There's no pressure there. Uh, but man, I, I really think it'll, it'll be helpful for you. So with all of that said, let's jump into the interview here with Dr. Jamie Dew. Hey, Jamie, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, I appreciate you taking your time uh, to do this. And I think the issue of apologetics within student ministry is really, really important. Um, and one that probably goes overlooked a lot, at least intentionally so, um, uh, but before, before we jump into that, why don't you take just a second, kind of introduce yourself to listeners? Um, and then we'll go from there.
1: All right. So yeah, my name is Jamie Dew. I'm the, uh, Dean of the College at Southeastern Seminary. We have an undergraduate school here, and I'm also a professor of philosophy and, uh, the history of ideas. And, uh, you and I served together for quite a number of years in local church, and I was a pastor of Stony Hill Baptist Church for about eight and a half years. Um, and before that, I pastored another church in Fayetteville, North Carolina and was involved in various kinds of family ministry, student ministry, things like that before in pastoring any of those churches. So, um, uh, yeah, I've been around students for quite a long time, and I still am around students a lot now, just they're college students. They're just kind of one step up from, say, high school, uh, and I'm getting them when they have a lot of these questions and a lot of these curiosities about different things. And so, uh, but yeah, so 20 years ministry. And, uh, having a great time doing it.
0: Yeah. And I, man, I'll tell you, having served alongside you and, uh, certainly learned a lot from you, uh, along and, th- and through that, I, I'm really excited to, to bring you on. I think what we're going to talk about is especially going to be helpful for listeners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would imagine that most youth pastors, youth workers listening, um, can relate to me on the other side where now I've got students who've graduated out who are coming back with a lot of questions. They're right. showing up in college, and mm-hmm. they're just getting lamb blasted, yeah, and and sure. not, you know they don't really know how to respond, right? Um, always, and so in the last episode, uh, we talked about the importance of theology and doctrine, okay, and, and how that kind of flushes out how do we approach that, the importance of that, and I think that dovetails well um, into yeah. this as well. So, where is is apologetics important? I mean, I think obviously it is. We're here talking about it, but mm-hmm. how? I mean, to what scale is that feasible in youth ministry?
1: Well, yes, yeah, two separate questions there, how important it is and then how feasible it is. Uh, you know, two separate questions. Let me try to take them both in turn. First of all, I I do like um, that you're starting and you're thinking about this the way that you you have been. And that, you know, first and foremost, before we go about the task of defending the faith, we first need to understand the faith. And so that places a premium right out of the gate on biblical understanding and theology, of course. And so, and I think most people will find when they get into evangelism, they start sharing their faith. And then inevitably they come across somebody who has some kind of question or criticism or skepticism about the faith that a lot of times those criticisms or skepticisms are based off of ignorance. And so the person that's going to defend the faith, if they don't understand their theology itself then obviously they're not going to do a very good job of defending the faith because they're defending something they don't even understand. And so, you know, all believers, not just students, but really all believers have to be involved in the business of of trying to understand this faith as much as we possibly can. Now, of course, um, there are certain things that will always be Rather obscure to us, like like for example, I, I think with the doctrine of the Trinity, we can make sense out of the logical categories of it. We can say, uh, at least in the philosophical side of things, we can say that you know this isn't actually contradictory. But does that mean that we understand it fully? Well, no, not necessarily. You know, there's there's going to be things that we still have see through a glass darkly on. So, but but nevertheless, we we should be a kind of people that are always striving to understand. And I think we find that when we engage people, some of the questions that come up are just based off of an ignorance of sorts. So, um, nevertheless, there are some times where you engage somebody and know they really do understand what we're saying. So, you know, you might be riding on an airplane or on a bus or at a coffee shop or, you know, it's a family member at Thanksgiving or something like that. And uh, they know what you believe. And the worst case scenario, you come across people that used to believe those things themselves. And so now you've, you've really got an ordeal on your hands. You're trying to convince someone who used to be convinced of something and has walked away. And here's an area where I say you just really have to, you have to have been able to give some thought to these types of things. So apologetics is important because we do have to share the gospel and show the love of Christ to those kinds of people. So, you know, I always say to my students, apologetics is important as we engage the non-believer. In fact, Uh, In my own life and ministry, uh, I didn't intend on becoming a philosopher at all. I mean, I I really thought I'd be an evangelist because early on in my my ministry, and my my walk with Christ, I mean, this was about, I mean, this was 100% about me sharing the gospel with people. And it was through doing evangelism and missions that I encountered people that had questions and criticisms. And, you know, as they start raising these things, you have to be able to respond to those things. And so, you know, doing Apologi- doing evangelism led to a need for apologetics. And so there's that obvious reason. I also point out to people, though, that apologetics is not just for the sake of engaging the non believer. I also think that apologetics is good for the believer itself. So, take, for example, that young man or that young woman that's been in, in your student ministry and they graduate as a senior and they go off to the local state university. And for the first time, maybe they were homeschooled or something, or maybe they went to a little Christian college, or maybe they just went to a little high school and, you know, nobody ever really challenged them. But now they're at the university and that philosophy professor or that science professor or that English professor is just really turning the screws on their faith. And they come away wrecked and demolished. And so, I, you know, I like to say to people, and and this has been true in my life, too. That apologetics is yeah, it's good for the non-believer, but it's very, very rich and good for the believer as well. And so, I think that's what I'd say in response to the importance of it.
0: Yeah, and I think there's an element in youth ministry where there's a transition from kind of protect mode to prepare. Yeah. And you know, when when they're coming up in our children's mm-hmm. ministry, we want to pour in, we want to invest, we want to lay a foundation there. Mm-hmm. But at some mm-hmm. point we've got to flip the script a little and begin to prepare them for what they'll face. Right,
1: right.
0: And and I think a lack of confidence and particularly when it comes to the area of apologetics often keeps us and keeps our students from sharing their faith.
1: Yeah,
0: sure. And it may be yeah. the, it may be the number one reason that our students aren't sharing Christ is because of yeah. their lack of apologetics.
1: Yeah. They feel very uncertain about it. And so why tread into some waters that you're afraid you're going to get popped on. Um, but so it's very, very important. Uh, now, whether how feasible and you ask a very interesting question there, and and so to kind of circle back around that, uh, I think it's um, it's feasible to begin the work. And I, I think if the if the youth pastor or the student pastor approach the work, or even the pastor for that matter, approach the work of preparing those high school students for college with the mindset of the it's their job to give them every single thing they ever need to know, then that's clearly not feasible but i think that's the wrong mindset i think i think what you what the job of the the student minister is to do and the, and the pastor is to help the student realize that there are in fact good answers to these types of questions out there and introduce them to this process because frankly and I, you know i've been at this 20 years now i've been at this 20 years professionally seeking degrees and teaching in academic institutions and writing books and doing things like this even 20 years in professionally I'm nowhere near where I need to be, so this is an ongoing journey for me. but I think I think it's the job of the student pastor and of the pastor to introduce the student and really the whole body to the process of learning. now it's important to introduce them to apologetics because of this. but I also I would say I don't think it's i don't I wouldn't want the the student pastor though to abandon all other types of spiritual formation and training for the sake of something purely intellectual like apologetics. Because what you find is that moral temptations and intellectual doubt tend to go hand in hand. So, for example, you have a lot of students, and I'm facing this with one of my own right now. Um, you know, yeah, he's struggling with his faith big time, but he's also struggling with loneliness. And there's a couple pretty girls that show him attention and, you know, the lure of that um is enticing and those two the doubt and the desire for other things tend to fuel each other and they go round and round and so part of preparing that student is that spiritual formation side and and that tends to be where i'd say student pastors do a good job of, of really pressing in
0: yeah and i th- when i think apologetics or i think when a lot of people think apologetics they think arguments they think right. Socrates they're thinking mm-hmm. you know debate they're thinking mm-hmm. you know is that is that an accurate description of what you would typically define apologetics as I mean, I think there's a part of it probably that may be that, but
1: yeah, definitely there's a part of it um but I wouldn't say that that's that's it in total i mean there's there's much more going on in apologetics here. Um some people like pascal for example talked a lot about the psychology of doing apologetics in other words what he's saying is he he was never really trying to present formal arguments he was more trying to prepare the ground for someone to think about god in the first place so he might help them realize that deep down inside they really want it to be true that god exists they already do have this hope and that sort of gave them a better disposition towards looking at these types of things and so yeah, I'd say a fully robust apologetic is going to do much more than just those arguments. And, you know, in my own life, take the arguments for God's existence, for example. Uh, I, you know, I think that those arguments, some of them at least, not all of them, but some of them at least, I think they work in a logical sense. Meaning I look at the arguments structurally, how they work logically speaking, and I think they actually pull off what they're trying to do. I can't avoid the conclusions that they draw. but interestingly. Those arguments aren't what do it for me on a, on a personal level. In other words, they, they're, those arguments, the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, though I think they work, those are not the reasons that I find myself continuing on in my faith. It's other types of considerations as well. So yeah, arguments are going to be a part of it, but that's not all of it at all. So for the youth pastor who's
0: just starting, maybe they're a year Mm -hmm. in, if that, and they're looking out, I mean, where do you begin?
1: Well, begin specifically on apologetics. You mean is that, is that what you yeah? Mean?
0: How do I? How do we begin to equip our students to be ready to at least not get washed away? You know, freshman year in the world religions class or in yeah. philosophy.
1: Yeah, I, I think that you know one very common way, uh, or very I think very wise way of doing this is to find out where your students are. Intellectually on these issues. So, for example, what I mean is I, I'm a big fan of not answering a question that hasn't been asked. If I've got a group of people and they're not worried about, say, the reliability of the Bible, they just believe that the Bible's that way. I'm probably not going to start there. Um, if I have a group of people that's fully, totally convinced that there really is a God, I'm probably not going to go there on the arguments for God's existence. But if I have a group of people that's really struggling with suffering and evil, and maybe there's, you know, been a death in the student ministry or a death in the church that's really rocked the landscape, um, then now I feel like that's the kind of thing that I've got to address. I feel like I've got to speak to those things. And now the, the deal is though, with these students for just from their high schools, they collectively as a group have already been predisposed to a potpourri of different issues, apologetically speaking. So in other words, some of them really are struggling with the existence of God and some of them aren't really are struggling with the problem of evil or other things like that. So probably step one for me would be to try to do a survey of some kind. And you could do that in a number of ways. You could do it in like a formal survey or you could just do a, like a Q and A Q&A night where people submit questions that they have. And then if I were that student pastor, what I would do is I'd begin reading and researching on those things about how I might go about trying to answer those questions. And, and that the people of God do think and that we do think through these types of problems and we do have answers to those things. And then you introduce them to a set of resources that where they can go and dig more on that if they want to. So that's what I would do.
0: And I think for us, for you know, I've always been really OK with a little bit of attention there. You know, I think. I think we almost do our students a disservice when we say, you know, everything is is you can un you can you can completely understand everything I'm trying to explain to you. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is yeah. un, there's we all when we kind of rip the faith element away yeah. from the Christian faith, you know, often we set our students up to fail on that side as well. So leaving, you know, hey, here here's your questions, here's the answers that I have for you. Here's the best mm-hmm. I can give you. At the end of the day, there is an element where we're not going to all completely understand everything. And that's okay. It's okay not to have the answers.
1: Yeah, that's right. And if you, you know, if you, if the youth pastor or the pastor puts on these airs, like he has solved this great problem and he really hasn't. Then they go off with a false confidence and they get into some other context and they realize that oh, wait, those answers really weren't definitive. And now they begin to question not just his answers, but the whole package of Christianity. And that's why I say you want to you want to be as humble and we can say more about the humility of all this later. But you want to be as humble as you possibly can in the way you go about answering these questions. Um, because we have a tendency to be very, very, very dogmatic about things. And and that rarely works out well, to be honest with you. It just rarely does. Yeah. And, I,
0: you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that we try to encourage our students is it's got to be about the person, right? You can't love the nations if you don't, if you're not burdened for the individual. And you, you're not going to be able to have, don't be afraid of those conversations, but you need to have them in in the sphere of just a deeply a deeply burdened heart for that person. Right, right. And, you know, and be okay with not having all the answers even in that yeah. context.
1: That's right. Um, That's right.
0: Because yep. I mean, I've seen so much damage done by you know, we we get on our little soapboxes and we just rail and rail and rail and and we we pretend like we have all the answers when we don't. And I think as a young youth pastor starting out, at, you know, you feel pressure, like you're saying, to have all the answers. Uh, you feel like it's your job to have all the answers. Like they're all looking to you to know it all, and that's really that's really not the case. It's not what's wanted, and it's not what's needed. They just they just want to know you. They want you to be honest, right. and um, it's the relationship ultimately that will that will matter.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they should see in you someone that's not a coward, afraid to ask the hard questions and pursue the answers. But at the same time, somebody that's transparent and honest about what they know and what they don't know. And I think what that does is it creates sort of an invitation to this lifestyle of pursuit. And that really, at the end of the day, is where we want our people to be. You know, where we're constantly pursuing, we're constantly pressing. And I've already mentioned it once, but I really love the way St. Anselm thought about his life and his pursuit of these things. It was faith seeking understanding. You know, he already did believe these things, but now he's just trying to understand it. Maybe not fully and completely, but to understand it to the best of our ability. That's what we're trying to do here.
0: And that is such a picture of student ministry. You see students come, especially if they are come to Christ fairly young. You see them then kind of hit a point about ninth or tenth grade, especially where all of a sudden now they're starting to really grow, seek to understand, kind of put legs to this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we have to step in right, and come alongside that for sure. OK, so are there certain things then or elements that you feel like, OK, because, you know, you're limited in the time you have with the students, mm-hmm. uh, both on an ongoing basis weekly and then just over the course, you're, you're talking six, seven years max with a student. Right. Mm-hmm. Are there certain things you feel like in student ministry, if, if you're going to focus on a few, here's yeah. some that really you should focus on?
1: Uh, Yeah, I do think that there are. I think there's some common threads, some common themes. But, but before I mention those, let me, let me sort of preface it by saying we do make a mistake, I think, if, if we somehow assume that the problems are just the exact same problem. Even if two people may struggle with the problem of evil, for example, there is a different texture and a different fabric to each individual 's per uh, struggle with those issues, so in other words, one person might be struggling with that in a pure intellectual way, and another person may be struggling with that because their mother died of cancer when they were eight years old you mm-hmm. know yeah and those are those are different kinds of struggles, one is more of an intellectual thing, and one is a very existential thing it, it hurt them very personally, so all that to say, even though you 're going to find some some very common themes, you really have to avoid a generic one-size-fits-all apologetic, because every person that you interact with is going to be different and have a different set of burdens and needs. This is honestly one of my biggest frustrations in apologetics today. There's amongst the intellectuals that are doing apologetics and writing about apologetics, there's, gosh, for several decades now, been an ongoing debate about apologetic method. Should we be evidentialist, which means you just marshal up all the evidence that supports your belief and throw it at people? Or should we be what we call presuppositionalist, which means you just have to show people that no thinking whatsoever is rational unless they assume God? And there's all these debates about which is a, which right is, which approach is right. And I think both sides wrongly presume that there's one right way to do it. And the reason I'd say there's not one right way to do it is because Every single human we talk to is different. And if you get lopsided, if you get overly committal to one perspective, one approach, then you're going to be a failure in talking to a lot of the other people that you talk to. So let me preface it with that. Just note that you really have to take this person by person, case by case. Now, having said that, yes, there are some common themes. And I think some of these are really obvious. The existence of God continues to be a pressing question. Um, we take it for granted in our circles. We've, we've, in our churches, we're so accustomed to talking about it and assuming it, but w- we fail to recognize the fact that none of us have seen him or touched him or heard him. And so naturally, people always have questions about that kind of thing. Do we really know that God exists because we've never seen him? That's one big thing. Um, related to that, the problem of evil. And I've mentioned that already several times, but the problem of evil, hits people, as I was saying, for different reasons. For some people, this is something they can't reconcile in their mind, why this bad stuff happens if God is supposed to be this really powerful, really good, really caring being. It just doesn't seem to add up. And then for other people, they may, and this is me, to me, the intellectual questions, like I just mentioned about the problem of evil, don't bother me as much as the existential piece of it. In other words, the fact that evil jumps up off the street and punches you in the gut and brings you to your knees and it hurts. And that's a that's an issue. So problem of evil, um, theology and science or religion and science, Bible and science is a big, big question. You know, evolution, is it true? Big bang? What do we make out of all those things? And here's an area where I especially think that we in the church have to be very, very careful. We're very quick to just take do a little quick Google search and find somebody that's railing on science. And that's our strategy. Let's, let's try to show that science is stupid. That's often our strategy. And, and that's not going to work, folks, because the fact of the matter of it is, as you say that to people, you're probably speaking into a microphone, you know, and you probably took your prescription medicines and your Advil for the pain in your left knee prior to speaking, you know, and we send emails to people saying these things and we, we do all these things where we're using science. And the fact of the matter is science really does work. And so how convincing is it when we turn right back around using science to talk about how science is another failure and kind of stupid? It's just contradictory. And, um, you know, the other thing we fail to do there uh, is we fail to differentiate what's actually at play in the science and what's not in play. So take, for example, Big Bang. I mean – I, I often wonder how long will we continue to do this because people will say, oh, Big Bang couldn't happen because the Bible says something different. Well, look, if Big Bang happened, it's, it confirms Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Big Bang's not a problem for the Christian. Big Bang is a problem for the naturalist, for the for the atheist who doesn't think that, you know, there's anything out there that the universe had a, uh, has a creator. Um, so we've, we've got to really be careful with how we approach the sciences. And, um, so that's always a big, big issue. Um, I think, uh, beyond that pluralism, religious pluralism, this idea that all religions are equal and who are we to, you know, look down on somebody from another faith or say that they're going to hell or anything else like that. And that one's gotten to be extremely sensitive today. And so that's going to always continue to be there. And then lastly, sort of related to that last one, moral issues, homosexuality, um, definitions of marriage, basic stuff, teachings of Scripture. Now we're having to make an apologetic for in this culture when we've not had to before. And I probably of everything I've just mentioned, I think the church is most ill-equipped on those types of questions than anything else. But they're sort of new to the field, uh, yeah. these moral issues, but they're important and we better get ready.
0: Yeah, and you're, I'm so glad that you, you mentioned in particular the science issue and the moral. Those are the two that I feel like I see often. Um, I think everybody to, everybody wrestles with the problem of evil. I know you've, you've kind of written on that some. Um, and, and certainly most of the situations we find ourselves counseling students in somehow come back to that question. Um, but man, oh man, are we ever getting, and our students are getting bombarded with the moral issues yeah. of that. And we're just, we've kind of dismissed science. It's almost expected of us now as the church that we'll just dismiss science. Um, and, and in both cases, you're right. We come so dogmatically against both. And, and in, and I think, with the issue of – here the problem I have with the moral issues and, and even the science things to some extent, we're standing preaching or teaching to a room of students or, you know, occasionally on the adults, for you, pastor. And we're teaching these things so matter-of-factly and we have people sitting listening who are genuinely struggling right. with making sense of it all. And they yeah. desperately want the hope you're trying to offer them. Right, but everything that you're telling them is just telling them that they're a moron for believing that, and we just we we discredit ourselves from the start.
1: Yeah, I, and if I can say this, I mean, and people may disagree with me on this, but I, this is a primary area where I think we're not doing a good job of thinking, thinking about this as honestly as we could, as should be, and bib, frankly, biblically. So, take for example the way this discussion tends to go down in our culture. You have what I call the religious right on one side and the liberal left on the other. And here's both sides agree that the question is, what did God make? And so the religious right is going to say, you were not born that way because God made us to be heterosexual. And Paul's there to say with them, yes, God did make humanity to be heterosexual. That is his intention for all of us. OK, I think that's biblical. We have to say that. Um, but how did a person come into the world is a separate question. I'll come back to that. Then the liberal left is going to say, no, I have been this way my whole life. I have always been attracted to men, they may say. A man may say that. Or a woman might say, I've always been attracted to females. And I've been that way since I was a little kid. So therefore God made me that way. And what's happening is, is two separate questions are getting conflated into one question. The question of what does God make? What did he make and intend for us? And the question of how did I come into this world personally as an individual? And I think if we look biblically at that, what you see is God does in fact make heterosexual male and female and he puts them together in a union of marriage, right? So that's his intention. But then he also says, don't eat that fruit because the day you eat that fruit, You shall surely die. So death comes. But then even beyond that, he says there's going to be thorns and thistles in the ground. There's going to be sweat of the brow. Difficulty will come. The thorns and thistles is interesting because that means the physical world is now messed up too. And so, well, what's involved in the physical? Thorns and thistles and dirt and trees and plants and human bodies and DNA and brains and things like that. And so could a person, if we're taking the fall seriously, could a person come into this world with desires that are bent towards the wrong thing. I say, not only does the Bible make room for that, but man, if we're reading our Bible and taking it seriously, I think it's predicting that. It's, it's telling us, in fact, yes, you will have all kinds of problems in your physical body. This is where cancers come from. This is where disease comes from. The physical world's messed up too. Not just our moral constitution, but the physical too. Now, does that mean that God wants this person to be homosexual? No. He intends for us to be heterosexual, but it does mean that his desires could be misoriented from the outset, just like we would say in the case of alcoholism or some other temptation that we might have. So as long as we continue to stand up and say to people, no, you're not that way from birth, (laughs) yeah, they're going to sit there and say, yeah, you you obviously don't know what I'm doing, what I have going on in my life here.
0: It diminishes the struggle. Yeah. regardless of the struggle or the sin, right? I mean, yeah. and I think Genesis 3 is definitely a game changer. And if yeah. if anything, and we talk about this a lot in, in here um with our students in our church, if anything, the fact that you are naturally drawn to something only proves the existence of the fall all the more. If, if I'm yeah. telling you God's Word says this is wrong, and you're saying, but this feels very natural to me, this just feels the way that it should be to me, Well, that's exactly what, that's exactly what the Bible is telling you. That your natural desires after Genesis chapter three, they're in, everything that was good and right and perfect before that is suddenly now in rebellion against everything that is good and right and perfect. That's right. And we're not equipping our students to recognize that in their own life. And this goes beyond the issue of homosexuality. I mean, this is in every way. Uh, you know, we as youth pastors, we we are now in a position and just where we are. We're having to do child protection policies. We're having to do uh, trainings on abuse and all these things. The reason we're having to do that is because there are people who prey on students. They're predators of right. students. They would say, this is natural to me. This is what I feel I should be doing. That's why they're doing it. That none of us would justify that and say that that's right. Yeah. That natural desire means nothing that's except right. that. It just it just reiterates the fact of the fall in Genesis chapter three and what we find in Romans chapter one and what we find in Romans chapter three and what we find in Ephesians chapter two. You know, there is this something is broken. The world is a broken place. Yeah. Um, Yeah,
1: something's warring within us, as James would say.
0: Yes. And so I'm so man, that is where I think most that's where we have been for the last couple of years with students is running up against these moral issues because it's so it's such a, a political hotbed right now around most of those mm-hmm. uh, in that. I mean, in regards to whether it's homosexuality or legalization of marijuana use and drug use yeah. and where that falls. And yeah, um, and we're just not preparing that, preparing them for that. Yeah. yeah. So great. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you you mentioned those because I think yeah. that is so important for where we are are there let me let me circle back for just a second to the problem of evil because i think okay. that is another question that we get asked often from students where where do we start there how do we defend that
1: yeah so you know there's historically the problem of evil comes in three different versions or three different varieties there's what we call the logical problem which simply says that there is some kind of logical incoherence in saying that god is good and powerful and evil exists, that those are logically incompatible, and therefore one of them has to be absolutely wrong. Since evil is so common and obvious, the idea that God exists must just be wrong. And so if that argument works, then it disproves with a logical certainty that God could exist. So that's a scary argument. good news is Christian philosophers have done a pretty good job of showing that, in fact, that argument doesn't work, and most atheists today would admit that that argument doesn't work. Okay. Then there's what we call the evidential argument. The evidential argument doesn't try to disprove with an absolute certainty God's existence, but it does try to say that in all probability, God doesn't exist. So it's a probability argument, not a certainty argument. And um that's honestly probably where the bulk of Christian apologetics has been done on the problem of evil for the last three decades is on the evidential problem of evil. And I would say... If I'm being honest with you, I'd say that intellectually that issue is probably at a stalemate right now. I think that we've sort of stopped and stymied the argument from the atheist there. Um, but we haven't completely eradicated it. That issue continues to go on. I don't think either one of those are the problem. (laughs) I don't, in other words, I don't think, I don't think that the reason the problem of evil is a problem is because you got a bunch of philosophers sitting around debating it. I think that evil is a problem because it, as I said earlier, it jumps up off the street and it punches you in the gut. It takes your parent from you. It takes your child from you. It takes your grandkid from you. It, it you lose your job because of it. You you get cancer because of it. It hits us personally, and when we stru- struggle and when we suffer, it suffering has a way of dislodging faith, if you will. And so I call that the existential problem or the religious problem of evil. It's the experience of evil. I think that's the issue. Now, I think that, um, I think that intellectually on the evidential problem, we've done a pretty dang good job of answering some of those questions. Um, pastorally, I'm not sure we're doing a great job of answering the layman's questions about why do I struggle? Why, where is God right now? I'm, I'm just not sure we're, we're doing a great job. And we say a lot of different things that, you know, are kind of contradictory. You know, sometimes we might say, well, God gave me free choice. I made the choice and therefore this happened. We might say, I've sinned, and therefore, like, you know, Katrina happens, and well, look at how horrible morally uh, New Orleans is, and that's why God let Katrina happen. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, though, because why did the little kids die, not the prostitutes or, you know, the pimps, you know? Right. Um, we say things like, God did it. And there's a lot of people today that would say that kind of thing. God did this for his glory. Yeah, but now you got problems with the doctrine of God. You know, how do you affirm that God is still good? And pure and, you know, John says in him was light and there was no darkness at all. I don't know how you make sense out of passages like that if you say those things. So here's an area where I think we have to really think carefully. And I'm not sure I have the answers here, but I'll take my stab at it. (laughs) Okay. I think, I think the wisdom of the Christian is to say perhaps we are now only seeing one little piece of the whole. And we have to admit, say like if, if the piece of the whole that we see is one puzzle piece, you often cannot make sense out of the whole puzzle from one piece of the puzzle. You know, it, it takes the whole puzzle being together. And and unfortunately, none of us in this lifetime are ever going to see that whole puzzle, right? Right. But we, we do know this, though evil itself and the particulars of evil, why this happened to this person and why God didn't answer this prayer this time. You know, those questions, while we may never be able to make full sense of those here and now, Um, here's what we do know. We know that God is good and we know that he's gracious and we know that he loves us. And we know that he's made promises to us, promises, not necessarily that things are always going to work out in this lifetime the way that we think it should. I think we've watched too many movies when we think that way. (laughs) Uh, He hasn't made those promises, but he's promised us that he loves us. He's promised us that he won't forsake us. And he's made a covenant with us through his son, Jesus such that He will, we are told, when it is all said and done, He will make everything right by His grace that we've made wrong by our sin. Hmm. He's made that covenant with us. And what are we? Well, we're really kind of like the children of Israel in that we are a people who have to learn how to wait. We are a people waiting while we suffer, waiting on God for Him on that day when He makes all things right again. And think about it, throughout the history of God's people, you have, say, Israel that goes down into Egypt for 400 years, and there are whole generations of people there that are born, they live, they suffer, they die, and they never see God's promises come to fruition. But they die in faith, they die waiting. And after 400 years, the book of Exodus starts with these words, and God heard the cry of his people, and he remembered the promise that he made to Abraham. And then the events of Exodus unfold. What do you see? You see, God has not forgotten his promises. Even though 400 years have gone by, he has not forgotten his promises. The people waited and he kept his promises. Think of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi speaks and then once again, radio silence from heaven for 400 years. And there are whole generations of people that die waiting and waiting and waiting and never seeing, but they wait. And then Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 that in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin. Jesus Christ has been born. And what do we see yet again? God, despite the fact, despite all appearances at times, God has not forgotten his promises and he will keep his promises. And so I, what I'd want to think about is what I'd call a theodicy of waiting. A covenantal theodicy of waiting that we are people, a theodicy is simply an explanation of why God's allowing evil and how we resolve this, but here we're we're resolving it not by necessarily trying to figure out the here and the now because I'm not sure we'll ever do that completely, but what we do know is that our God is good, and when all a sudden when all is said and done, he will keep his promises to us, and I think that's what we wait for that's what we long for that's what we hope in
0: yeah, I think that's so good and you know we think um i think you can look even individually and and look back at your you know everybody can kind of look back at their life and see moments where you felt like in a mini version almost of that at least where you were just waiting and yeah. then god just steps in in his faithfulness in his timing and yeah. in his goodness um and i think we point students to that and um and we just we just camp out on the character of who God is. I think that's where we fail so often is we have not done a good job of teaching our students and our people the character and nature of God. Yeah. And, and it yeah. just leads us astray so often.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's often. right. And hence, hence why we have to start with theology and uh, making sure we understand what our faith is really all about.
0: Yeah. You know, any, um, anything, any last things you'd throw in that, that I haven't asked about or,
1: yeah, just a couple of things. Uh, here's some mistakes I see people make when they start doing apologetics. They start reading a bunch of really cool textbooks, and that's good. You need to do that. Um, but a couple sort of interpersonal things that people do. We have a tendency, if I can just be frank about this, those who do apologetics are often the very last people on earth that need to be doing apologetics. And what, <laughs> what I mean by that is their disposition is all wrong. They come across as a show-off. They come across as look at all I know. They're kind of a punk. They're edgy. They're sarcastic. They're kind of mean. Um, it's a contest with the person they're talking to. And I cannot say this strongly enough. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Uh, if you do that, you're going to be counterproductive and you're not going to, you're just really not going to have the effect that you're trying to have. The, the Bible's very clear. We love people. Yeah. When we do apologetics, we're we're doing sort of an, interle- in an intellectual pastoral job, really. We're helping people to see differently, and that's all. And we have to love them and show compassion to them. Um so so yeah, really be careful about how you do this. Um don't assume, as I mentioned earlier in the the podcast, that apologetics is sort of this one size fits all thing that if you just a lot of students A lot of people come to me and say, well, what do I say when somebody says this? As if there's this one magical line to let roll (laughs) up your tongues. And let me be clear here. There is no such animal. You you really have to take it person by person, case by case, and hear people. Uh, Which brings me to my third one. When you do apologetics, we often think we hear somebody say, I'm an atheist. And then we kind of freak out. And then we do the worst possible thing we could do. We start talking. And what I think we need to do is if you've got an hour with that person, listen for 55 minutes.
0: Yeah.
1: Listen the vast, overwhelming majority of the time. If he's talking more or she's talking more, that does not mean you're being unfaithful, and that does not mean you lose. It means that you're being a good friend, yeah. and it means you're actually opening them up where they might actually listen to you when you do speak. So listen well, speak little when you talk with people. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's very important that you do that. Um Don't disengage too early. Remember, we're asking people to do the single greatest thing they'll ever do in their life, and that is trust and follow Jesus Christ. And that's not something we should expect a three-minute gospel conversation to be enough to really answer the questions. Um, stay long with them. Talk often with them. Build friendships over years with them, if that's what it takes, to win them and to love them. Um But it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be quick, and it's probably not going to be easy. So don't expect that of yourself. Just... Go ahead and settle in to the fact that this might be a very long relationship and love them enough to give them that kind of relationship. So, you know, in my own ministry, um, I, honestly, there's very little place for these little five minute exchanges where I zing somebody. Uh, that's not how this works. It's really about loving them and being thoughtful enough that you can help them think through the problems.
0: Yeah. So. Any uh, Any resources you'd recommend or throw out?
1: I'd recommend two just as a sort of catch-all because when you start – it's like anything else. When you start reading apologetics, you really kind of have to start broad and then figure out what the issues are that you need to zoom in on a little bit more, and then you, do, you go from there. Let me offer two very broad um, books. Now, these are big books, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're hard books, but they're – but they're big simply because they cover a lot of terrain and you could read these. One's by a guy named Doug Grotice. Douglas Grotice. And I'll spell his last name because it's, it's a bit odd. Douglas Grotice. G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S. And he's got a fabulous intro to Christian apologetics called Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. And this is about a 700 page book that's just got tons of stuff in it. And you, you know, you don't have to read it cover to cover. You can read the parts of it that you want. Uh, And then similar to that, The New Dictionary of Christian Apologetics by W.C. Campbell Jack and Gavin McGrath is a great book that can kind of give you broad coverage of different things. So I'd start there, read the things that you're most interested in, and then dive down a little deeper from there.
0: That's great. We're not afraid of big books here. (laughs) Good, good. good. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes for folks so they can grab them and not have to try to spell all that out um, for you. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I know, um, I know it'll be helpful. Good. I know it'll be helpful. Follow
1: me if I can do anything else for you. Okay.
0: All right. Thanks, Jamie.
1: All right. Bye.
0: There you have it. A great interview uh, with Jamie. Just such good wisdom there. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy, huh? Some of us need to go take a nap after listening to that. But listen, I don't want you to be intimidated. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. With the idea and a lot of what we're talking about in there, again, you don't have to have all the answers, but you do need to be willing to have those conversations and address those things with your students because they have these questions. Whether they're asking them or not, they have them. So you need to be working hard to create a culture of safety and openness where they feel like they can come and ask those questions. And then you just be diligent on your part to do what you can to uh, to follow up and answer those and combat those. If you don't answer them, someone else will, and the answer they will likely get from someone else will not be the correct one. And so you're not investing in pouring into these students all of these years to turn them loose to somebody who's going to give them the wrong answer and undo and wash away everything that you've tried to do and invest into the life of that student. Check out those resources again, the slash episode zero one one. You'll find those links there. Also, Don't forget to head over to audible.com, our sponsor for today's show. Sign up for your free book and free 30-day trial. That's thelongerhall.com slash audible trial, thelongerhall.com slash audible trial. And that'll do it for today. That'll put this episode in the books. We'll see you in the next episode. And until then, give them Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast at www.thelongerhall.com.